Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know... Split screen, a clear contrast as President Trump and Joe Biden hold rival town halls. Spend, spend, spend. U.S. retail sales numbers better than expected in September. And second wave strategy, new restrictions in Europe as COVID cases rise. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Great to be with you as always. And we're bringing you the latest on the science, the stimulus, presidential town hall sniping and some relatively robust shopping numbers here too from the US consumers. We've got some theories on that. All this amid some pretty dire new warnings about the dangers of Washington's emergency aid in action. A new study says poverty rates in the United States are higher today than actually before the COVID crisis hit. The author of that study coming up in the show and the stimulus stalemate, of course, and the resurgence of COVID cases, particularly in Europe, remain a wall of worry, I think, for investors to climb. Not that you'd know it from looking at that board. Stocks set to consolidate here in the United States, too, after three days of losses. Europe also higher and Asia, a little bit mixed performance in the session overnight too or during the day, depending on where you're watching is from. Stocks closed off session lows Thursday in the US on news that key negotiators, House Leader Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin talked for over an hour yesterday. But the sad fact is everyone has an interest, it seems, in looking like they're still trying 18 days before the presidential election. But actually getting cash to struggling people doesn't always align with the political incentives of doing a deal or not. The key point, though, is investors can wait. Ordinary people cannot. In the meantime, U.S. retail sales numbers coming in a lot higher than expected last month, a rise of almost 2%, a nice bounce from the last two months, but still well below the gains we saw in May and June. So perspective here is important. The bump up in benefits may have ended by September, but some of that money was clearly saved and now coming in handy, perhaps. Walmart CEO Doug McMillan joined a growing list of corporate executives pleading for lawmakers to act. His message, Americans just need some help. Let's get to the drivers. The two men vying to win the White House have very different perspectives on what it means to help Americans both now and in the future. So it's perhaps a case of a compare and contrast regarding Thursday's night's dueling town halls. Joe Johns takes a closer look. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden faced off in dueling town halls scheduled after Trump refused to participate in a virtual debate following his coronavirus diagnosis. A topic he tried to avoid, like when asked whether he was tested the day of the first debate. You know, if you ask the doctor, they give you a perfect answer, but they take a test and I leave and I go about my business. Did you take a test on the day of the debate, I guess Uh, is the bottom line. I probably did, and I took a test the day before and the day before. 
Trump in Miami also downplaying the Rose Garden event that may have infected him, White House staff members, and others. Well, they do a lot of testing in the White House. They test everybody, including me, but they test everybody until people wear masks. But just the other day, they came out with a statement that 85% of the people that wear masks catch it. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, Biden slammed Trump's handling of the pandemic. He missed enormous opportunities and kept saying things that weren't true. It's all going to go away like a miracle. He's still saying those things. The Democratic nominee also criticized Trump's messaging as harmful to the coronavirus response. The words of a president matter. Absolutely. No matter whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, they matter. And when a president doesn't wear a mask or makes fun of folks like me when I was wearing a mask for a long time, then, you know, people say, well, it mustn't be that important. For most of the night, Trump was combative, including when pressed on his refusal to condemn white supremacy in the first debate. I denounced white supremacy, okay? You did I denounced white supremacy for years, but you always do it. You always start off with the well, question. You didn't ask Joe Biden whether or not he denounces Antifa. This time around, the president declined to condemn QAnon conspiracy theories. I know nothing about QAnon. I just told I you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. I hate to say that. I know nothing about it. I do know they are very much against uh, pedophilia. They fight it very hard, but I know nothing about it. They believe it, it is if a you'd satanic like me to run by the deep study state. The subject, I'll tell you what I do know about. I know about Antifa and I know about the radical left and I know how violent they are. Biden mostly provided long answers laying out his policy plans and said this about his involvement in a crime bill as a senator. Was it a mistake to support it? Yes, it was, but here's, the, here's where the mistake came. The mistake came in terms of what the states did locally. The former VP dodged a question about whether he's looking to expand the Supreme Court in the wake of Senate Republicans' move to rush the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. But don't voters have a right to know where you they stand? They do have a right to know where I stand, and they'll have a right to know where I stand before they vote. So you'll come out with a clear position before Election Day? Yes, depending on how they handle this. Trump did little to deny the New York Times reporting about his tax returns. Are you confirming that, yes, you do owe some $400 million? What I'm saying is that it's a tiny percentage of my net worth. When you look at vast properties like I have, and they're big and they're beautiful and they're well-located, when you look at that, the amount of money, $400 million, is a peanut. When asked what a Biden loss would mean for the country, the former vice president said this. Well, could say that I'm a lousy candidate. And I didn't do a good job. Um, but I think, uh, I, I hope that it doesn't say that we are as racially, ethnically, and religiously at odds with one another as it appears the president wants us to be. Joe Johns joins us now. Great job in putting two hours into uh, around four minutes there, Joe, quite frankly. Very different interviewees, also very different interviewers. And I think the style differences there are important to point out. But, Joe, for me, the big question comes down to for voters that voted for President Trump in 2016, when you look at that performance and the contrast, are you still as enthusiastic and as enthralled by the president as you were back then? Or are you simply exhausted? That's very right. And there has been a lot of reporting on the polling with reference to the Trump exhaustion factor, if you will. 
And I think the other thing important to say is the president is just barnstorming all of the battleground states, a number of which he won during 2016, and now it's very close, or even Joe Biden in some cases is ahead. And the concerns there uh, for the Trump campaign are about people like white women in the suburbs, senior citizens. These are some of the voters who really helped turn the tide for the president in 2016. But this time around, for one reason or another, are suggesting they may not vote for the president. Probably tops on everybody's list here is the administration's performance with coronavirus. Julia. Yeah, such great points. Joe Johns, thank you so much for uh, your analysis there. We'll see. U.S. consumers not as cautious as expected in September. Retail sales growing 1.9% last month, a big improvement from the 0.6% we saw in August. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, I'm never surprised now when data surprises us, quite frankly, because (laughs) economics around the pandemic is is fingers in the wind. But what are your thoughts on what's going on in September? It's really a sign of a resilient consumer and a couple Mm. of reasons why. I think it shows us that that extra money in jobless benefits and stimulus checks at the beginning of the summer they people socked some of that away. So they still had some spending power when school opened up later than usual and they had to buy for their kids. So you saw things like clothing and sporting goods. Uh, you saw uh, books and apparel. These are the kinds of things that people were buying. Gas prices or gas sales were up. That's because gas prices were up. Car sales were up as well. So I think what you see here is kind of a, a more resilient consumer than we thought. But, you know, that money is drying up. We know that there was a New York Fed study, I think, that showed that 36 Six percent of the stimulus checks went into the bank or to pay down debt. So there were families who were wisely sort of shoring up their financial situation and saving for a rainy day. Now they're spending that nest egg down a little bit and there are no more stimulus funds coming in the near term, it looks like. So we'll have to see if this number, the September number, can be maintained if you don't have that that terrific um, shock absorber, that force of, of government spending behind it. Yeah, I was also thinking when I saw this number, perhaps people were also at that point assuming, look, there are negotiations going on. Right. We're going to get another stimulus check. That was the hope. And everyone seemed to be making noises at that point about it, too. Fast forward to what I called the stimulus money Muppet show, quite frankly, yesterday, which was the president offering. But a Muppet show is fun to watch. (laughs) Yeah, I know. In my world, in in Julia world, the Muppet show is a bit of a disaster, quite frankly, and no one's really making sense. And no one agrees with anyone else, quite frankly. And that's what we saw yesterday. President Trump suggesting he was willing to go above one point eight trillion dollars within a few hours. uh, Mitch McConnell comes out and says, we're simply not doing that. I mean, even within the parties, the individual yeah. parties, there's disagreement. This is and simply think, not happening. Right. I mean, you, I think you have the White House, which has a different position than um, the, the Senate leadership and Democrats. I mean, you have three parties here trying to negotiate, and one of them is negotiating via Twitter. You know, the president, he says, go big, you know, go big or go home. Well, you know, Nancy Pelosi could argue, the Speaker of the House, they did go big uh, in May 15th with three, $3.4 trillion. Where was the president's where was the president weighing in months ago uh, that, that we could have had um, some money flowing uh, right now? There is an assumption, though, and I think that you're seeing that in markets today. There is an assumption that there will be stimulus sometime early next year. There will be spending, coordinated federal spending again sometime next year. So that's good for Wall Street. And as you always point out, just because it's good for investors doesn't mean it's good for real people right now. And that's the real tragedy of this. Yes, investors can wait. 
the real economy and consumers yep. can't and we'll keep reiterating it. I've just realized Muppets are sort of talking heads. So they may be cute, but so they're, they're here, just, you know. I know. Like here, you remember the Muppet Show, you know, and like the cute little, know. you know, I know. That's, nothing that's cute. the Muppet Show I like. Nothing, <laughs> nothing cute about this. Christine Romans, have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you. Right, moving on to China now. Chinese authorities say they've tracked down the source of a coronavirus cluster in the city of Qingdao. They say the recent outbreak was traced to two dock workers. Selena Wang joins us now from Hong Kong. Wow, Selena, when I saw this and assuming it's correct and we can trust the information we're being given, the fact that they can test so many people and contact trace and isolate it to two individuals is pretty phenomenal, actually. Absolutely, Julian. We've been talking about the contrast between the approaches in Asia to the rest of the world, and this really just reinforces that. In less than a week, China was able to test more than 10 million people, and this was in response to just a dozen locally transmitted cases that were found in Qingdao, a northeastern city in China, last weekend. Authorities were also able to quickly trace that to two dog workers who were then treated at a local hospital. According to officials, the room where they got a CT scan wasn't disinfected properly, which then led to further infections. Now, we have already seen two local officials in Qingdao get fired over this. Up until this latest flare-up, China hadn't reported a single locally transmitted case since mid-August. But China is very concerned about even a small number of cases because this comes right after that mass travel holiday, the Golden Week holiday, when more than half a billion people in China were traveling at the same time. And Qingdao is a very popular tourist spot. According to government officials, more than four million people had traveled there during the Golden Week holiday. It's famous for its beer, for its beaches. So the concern was that people could be very quickly spreading this during the holiday period. Now, this is incredibly impressive what we've seen, but Beijing, China has done this playbook many times before in other areas where there have been local outbreaks in Wuhan, in Beijing, in Xinjiang, in Dalian. For instance, in Beijing over the summer, there was a new cluster of cases, so parts of the city were locked down. You had millions of people tested in a matter of days. In fact, I was one of the people who had to quarantine in my home for two weeks. They set up testing sites across the city, but some people, including myself, were tested at home. So people showed up in hazmat suits to my apartment door to get my test taken. And I could not leave my apartment until I tested negative twice. Now, the way they were able to do this so fast, Julia, in Qingdao is through something called batch testing, where they test groups of 10 samples at a time. And if a batch comes back positive, they will then go individually test each person and have them quarantine. Now, that has been extremely fast, but some experts have expressed skepticism, saying that it takes time to figure out the real results here because someone can test negative, and then a few days later, it'll come back positive. But for now, it seems that China has very quickly squashed this latest cluster. Yeah, I mean, the, the belief is that you have to do the test and then do another test at least five days after, perhaps even a little bit more in, in order to ensure that you've got a negative that's a negative and doesn't become a positive. But to your first point, the difference here in handling is uh, vast. Selena Wang, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Coronavirus infection rates are rapidly climbing in much of Europe. 30,000 cases were reported in France on Thursday. That's a record high. Paris and nine other cities are now preparing for an emergency curfew beginning tonight. Senior international correspondent Jim Bitterman joins us now from Paris. Jim, great to have you with us. Just talk us through what that curfew looks like and how long it's expected to last. 
Well, it's expected to last at least four weeks, according to President Macron, and he even hinted that it might go on beyond that to December 1st. But in fact, for the initial stage, it's going to be four weeks long, and the way it's going to work, it starts at midnight tonight, as you said, uh, it's going to uh, start at 9 p.m. That's starting tomorrow night. It'll start at 9 p.m. And you're in a kind of a lockdown until 6 in the morning, a curfew. You can't be out on the streets during those hours. And as a consequence, this country, which is known for its nightlife, has put a, it has been a crimp put in its style because it, you, the restaurants and uh, nightclubs and theaters and those sorts of, of operations are going to be severely curtailed by this. And in fact, they've already been curtailed because of all the economic consequences of the COVID virus. Now it's going to be even worse, at least for them. Julia? Jim, stick with me on the maths on this, because I'm just, I'm just thinking about this. You've got 30,000 new cases daily in France. Just comparing it with the United States, I think a fifth of the population. So if I multiply 30,000 by five, I get to 150,000. That's three times in terms of population adjustment that the United States has gotten and President Trump and, and governments here clearly being lambasted. Jim, what are the people saying about the government's handling of, of the COVID crisis in France? Well, perhaps because of that, Julie, I think that there is not as much a pushback to this curfew as you might think. Uh, in fact, there were a couple of uh, news organizations here did snap polls after Macron addressed the nation on Wednesday night. Uh, and somewhere between 62 and 73 percent, depending on which poll you're looking at, uh, of the people who were asked said that they basically agreed with the idea of a curfew. I think people understand that there's something got to be done because the, the numbers are exploding exponentially. Uh, just in this last week, they've seen the numbers climb up and up and up. And that 30,000 figure uh, from yesterday was, in fact, a new record. So uh, there's also a number, other numbers that are out there that are, are concerning the number of ICU beds, for example, in the Paris area that are occupied by uh, COVID patients is something like 47%. So, you know, almost half of the ICU beds here in the Paris region are occupied by COVID patients. It's, it's not a very good picture as far as the government's concerned, and in fact, as far as the French are concerned. Do yeah, it's frightening. It's absolutely frightening. Jim, great to have you with us and uh, getting your update on that. Jim Bittman in Paris. All right, let's move on. Boris Johnson says Britain should prepare for a no-trade deal Brexit, accusing the European Union of refusing to negotiate seriously. The Prime Minister says the UK will probably have an Australian-star relationship with the EU based on principles of global free trade. Meanwhile, Australia's one-way travel bubble with New Zealand is now officially in business. Passengers got a warm welcome as the first flights from Auckland arrived in Sydney. They won't be required to quarantine as Australia slowly reopens to international tourism. Wow. All right, first move is coming up. I'm coming right back after the break, so don't go away. Plenty more to come. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York. Get the show name right, where futures are green following a stronger-than-expected U.S. retail sales number read for September. Sales more than doubled expectations. Investors perhaps also holding out hope for some kind of emergency aid breakthrough in Washington, according to various reports I've read this morning. You know my take. Don't hold your breath, sadly. 
deal-making, meanwhile, in the banking sector, helping the overall mood too. First Citizens Bank Shares and the CIT Group are merging in an all-stock deal that will create the 19th biggest U.S. bank by assets. The banking sector, of course, under pressure amid the COVID crisis. Shares of both companies are higher pre-market. CIT posting the best gains. Interesting to uh, see an acquiring bank as well, gaining in, in both cases here. Boeing helping give Dow futures a boost as well after Europe's top aviation regulator said the 737 MAX is safe to fly again. As you can see, that stock up some 4.8%. All right, some news just into CNN. Pfizer now says it expects to apply for emergency authorization for its COVID-19 vaccine in the third week of November. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, if that's true, that's great news. It is great news, but there is a big if here. And I wanted to talk about the exact words um, from the Pfizer CEO. He said, assuming positive data, and I'm emphasizing the word assuming, assuming positive data, we will apply for this emergency use authorization sometime after we hit this milestone in the third week of November. That's assuming the data is positive. What Pfizer is basically saying, or if you sort of read what they're trying to say here is that they will have some data to give to the FDA, assuming it's positive, they will apply. Well, it might not be positive, right? They might get data showing, hopefully not, but they might get data showing that the vaccine doesn't work. They might get data showing, eh, we can't quite tell, keep plugging away, keep going in your trial, we'll look at some more data later, or the data could show that it works. All the experts that I've talked to say they suspect it will not show that the data works because it's just too early. They expect this is going to take more time. But it is good to know that they have hit a point where they at least think they will have some data towards the end of November. Julia? Oh, dear. There we were getting all excited and you've done it again, Elizabeth. I know. But the, I know that the reality check is good. We're going to get another reality check as well. Remdesivir, the World Health Organization. This, in addition to other therapeutics, have come out with a global study and the results are not great. Right. This was a long-awaited study, a very large study. It looked at remdesivir, the antiviral drug. In the U.S., it was approved for COVID, which was a big deal. What they found is that it didn't actually save lives. Given to hospitalized patients, didn't actually save lives. Now, in some ways, that's not surprising. Even in the U.S., they didn't find that it saved lives. What they did find was that it would cut a hospital stay by several days, which doesn't sound like much, but that is a big deal. It's better to be in the hospital for a shorter period of time than a long longer period of time. But Julia, unfortunately, what this WHO study found is it didn't even do that. It didn't even shorten a hospital stay. So that's that's problematic. What it's basically finding is that remdesivir, it looks like, didn't possibly do much of anything. Uh, that will certainly, I think, maybe spur more studies because we need another study to sort of figure out what's really going on here. Although WHO calls their evidence conclusive. But it doesn't make a difference for the emergency use authorization here in the United States. Can that still continue and people can still continue to use? Because with remdesivir, the president was given it when when he was unwell. 
Right. And so I think it's important to say that there are not a whole lot of safety concerns right. with remdesivir. There are a few, but it's not a big deal. So I think many patients would say, you know what, I'm in the hospital. I'm not doing well. Give this to me. If there is even a study shows that shows that it might help, give it to me because it's probably not going to hurt me. But I think that you make a good point, Julia. Let's take hydroxychloroquine as an example. That received an emergency use authorization, unbelievably, but it did. So that, that got an emergency use authorization, and it was then rescinded a while later. It is possible that authorities in the United States will take a look at this WHO study and say, hmm, I don't know, maybe remdesivir shouldn't have an authorization from the FDA. We'll have to wait and see what they do. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. So many questions always. And I have another one because you and I discussed AstraZeneca and their vaccine with Oxford University and why the trial was allowed to continue after a pause in the UK versus still being on hold in the United States. And I know you've been doing some digging into perhaps why. What can you tell us? Right. This trial has been on hold for quite a while, for more than a month in the United States. And the question is, what is taking so long? Why has the U.S. FDA not made a decision about whether can this trial continue or maybe we need to stop this trial? So let's take a look at the timeline and about what and what a source tells me. On August 31st, AstraZeneca started their phase three trial. And then on September 9th, they announced a pause. So really very shortly thereafter, they said that a study participant had become um, ill. And then the week of October 5th, we, I, what the, my source says is that the week of October 5th, AstraZeneca finally got the safety data to the FDA. So if the pause was announced September 9th, why did it take them about a month to get the safety data to the FDA? That's unclear, but a former FDA official tells me the FDA is probably being really stringent. We want to see the imaging tests on this patient. We want to know more about what happened with this patient. And there may be some back and forth between AstraZeneca and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And so what this former official said to me is, look, it could take a while. The U.S. FDA is really going to want to know specifically what happened to this patient. And is it similar to what happened to an earlier patient? Because we now know that two participants in this AstraZeneca trial, and I should say participants, not patients, two participants suffered neurological symptoms. That is a red flag. Two different participants at two different times suffered neurological symptoms after receiving this vaccine. That's a red flag. The FDA is spending time trying to figure this all out. Yeah, and given the skepticism in this country, we're happy with that. We want it soon, but we want it to be safe. The end. Correct. Elizabeth Cohen, great to have you with us. Have a good weekend. Thank you. you. All right, back after this with the market open. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running on the last day of the trading week. And as expected, we have a higher open. The market action strengthening over the past hour on news that U.S. retail sales hit their best level since June of this year. Sales rising almost 2% in the month of September, led by double-digit gains in both clothing and accessories. Evidence, as we've discussed already on the show, that the U.S. consumer remains resilient, but the recovery overall remains fragile and struggling Americans need further help. Investors 
We'll closely watch the mood in Washington today to see if we're any closer to an emergency aid deal. New aid would also give U.S. retailers a further shot in the arm, too, as we head into the winter months. One company, though, that doesn't need further support clearly is Amazon. The firm touting its Prime Day as a success for small and medium-sized businesses who sell on the platform. That may be, but independent bookshops, though, are taking a different view, and it's a grim one. Sarah McNally, the owner of McNally Jackson Books, is part of the Boxed Out campaign to save independent booksellers. And she's been tweeting, as you can see, begging readers to come back to the neighborhood bookshop and not just her own. And she joins us now. Sarah, great to have you on the show. Just talk to us about this campaign. Do you feel like you're in a a fight for survival? And is the enemy here, Amazon? I think it's quite clear that we're in a fight for survival and the booksellers across the country are right now feeling extremely embattled and of course there's many factors to people not being in our stores but the terrifying, the most terrifying one is that it's a factor that will last longer than the pandemic which is a further encroaching of Amazon on into the book market where it's already encroaching upon publishing, audiobook sales and has, um, is eating bookstores both the Indies and the Chains alive. This um, this initiative was by the American Booksellers Association. And my original thought of it was that it was too negative. And we've always, as a store, my store is now 16 years old. My first store is 16 years old. We have four bookstores now. Um, we've never we've never gone negative on Amazon. We've never gone negative at all. Our um, approach to selling books has always been that we do a better job and so come to us. And it's always, it's always worked for us. And suddenly we have, um, we're facing something where doing a really great job is not enough. And so for the first time we agreed to work with the ABA and try and alert consumers to what they're doing when they shop at Amazon and that it, it's not exactly zero sum. If, if consumers take 10, 20, 30% more of their purchases on Amazon, that can be enough to kill your local businesses. And the repercussions of this are multifold. I mean, there's the repercussions on the streetscape. You're left without um, bookstores or other stores on your street. You're robbing your federal government, your state government, and your local government of taxes. And mm. this all this ripples through our um, our communities dramatically. I mean, there's the argument that of the convenience factor of Amazon, but then the ultimate challenge in the face of the COVID crisis and people simply being fearful of going out, not being allowed to go out, of even just physically touching something like a book that someone else may have touched, Sarah, which I think also plays into this. I know you offer the online sale opportunity too. Can you compete even now? Because I know you've been through a, a torrid time already. As you reopen, can you can you compete with online sales, even if you can't bring people in store as much as you would like to for now? We've certainly gotten much better at online sales. It was something we had to invent pretty quickly in mm. March, April. Now we have an infrastructure. We've actually built a warehouse and um, we're ready. We're ready to ship, and we're ready to take online orders through McNallyJackson.com. And I think that most of the bookstores across the country have um, have found similar things. It, it's interesting because setting up for warehouse is very is very different, and it really. We've all known for a long time that when Amazon says it brings jo- it brings jobs to a community, that they're not very fun jobs compared to, for example, working in a bookstore. And my my booksellers have unfortunately learned that lesson as they're becoming increasingly. Um, web store fulfillers and it, it's not nearly as good a job as book selling but we're doing it we're, do, we're doing it we're, we're doing it well i think 
Yeah, it's it's a challenge. It's something that's far more personal being in a bookstore. But I know there's a romanticism to to what you've built as well. What's the biggest challenge? I mean, how much loss of business have you seen? Have you managed to get loans or have you stayed without borrowing money? And I guess the other thing is, what about rent? How do you pay rent in New York City when you've lost so much business? I don't know why I'm smiling because it's all so horrible. No, business is really, yeah. it's terribly, 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 terribly down. And Manhattan, I mean, there's layers of problems with the Manhattan stores. I mean, we had tourists, of course. We had people from outer boroughs in the tri-state areas who were coming into um, Manhattan to see shows or go for dinner. We had people who were going to offices. And then, of course, we had locals. And everybody's gone, including the locals who also, who seem to have um, a lot of them, huge percentage of them left town. So business is catastrophic. We had, the federal government was very helpful really to us, first with the PPP and then through the Small Business Association, we received I think $600,000 in emergency loans. That money's now gone. It's gone as of last week. And um, so this, this ABA campaign hit at just the right time because we're out of federal money and the state and the city have done, have done nothing. I mean, I'm stunned at how little the state and the city have done. And the one thing that they could very clearly do is put some sort of regulations around COVID rent. And instead, what's happened is that every business is left on their own, negotiating with their landlords and more benevolent landlords will keep their tenants, less benevolent landlords will go vacant and wait for a higher paying tenant. And it seems this seems like a perfect situation for government intervention. It's a systemic problem. It can be dealt with with a systemic solution. And instead, it's just a bunch of, of, of people arguing with landlords. Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. So I guess the message here is to people as consumers, think about your local communities and supporting them as best you can, because once they're gone, they're potentially gone forever. And the second point here is government needs to step up and provide more support. And, and there's ways the government could, I understand that the city and state governments are hurting right now. One of the reasons why they are hurting is because people are buying online, which robs their communities of tax dollars, which and it, which ripples around again. It's a circular effect. I mean, it's estimated that, that Jeff Bezos became $78 billion richer during um, this pandemic already. And I mean, in every few seconds, there's probably $2 million worth of orders on Amazon. And this is a company that's incorporated in Luxembourg that for three years paid no taxes at all. And last year paid, I think, 1% taxes to the federal government. It's not, it's not bringing money back into the community. And we have to think more holistically about how, as a community, we spend our dollars and what we're actually buying. That Maybe you will save 3 or 4 or $5 buying a book on Amazon. Um, or maybe more because they can afford to, they're still they're still now, even after their annihilation of book selling, they're still now deep discounting a few books and losing money on them to pull all revenue away from any street level um, bookstores around the I country. Hear I hear yeah. um, Amazon, of course, has an open invitation to come on the show and uh, defend themselves and talk about what they do. But Sarah, keep in touch, please. We wish you, you the best. And... Yes, I think there's a future in the government if you want it going forward as a, an advocate. Oh, I love it. I'm Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Sarah McNally of McNally Jackson Books. Thank you. Poverty in the United States, worse than it was pre-COVID, but stimulus can help and did, as you heard there. That's one of the conclusions of a study into the economic impact of the pandemic. We've got more after this.
Welcome back to First Move. The coronavirus pandemic pushing Americans into poverty and now stimulus is little more than a memory. A study by Columbia University shows government stimulus worked well in the early stages of the pandemic, but as support for it dwindled in Congress, its effects warned too. According to the researchers, the U.S. poverty rate in September was 16.7% compared to 15% in February. Zach Parolin, a postdoctoral researcher at the Center of Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University, is a co-author of the study, and he joins us now. Zach, great to have you with us. I want to talk in detail about what we saw, but for me, what leapt out immediately was that you managed to see 18 million Americans kept out of poverty in the beginning as a result of the stimulus. And by September of this year, that number dropped to 4 million. Interesting dynamics on just a monthly basis. Yeah, it's it's just evidence that the CARES Act, as imperfect as it was when it was passed at the end of March, was successful in keeping, as you said, 18 million people across the United States out of poverty in April and May. But as the summer went on, those benefits began to dwindle. That $600 per week unemployment top-up expired at the end of July. And as a result, in August and September, poverty rates are actually higher than they were in April and May, and certainly higher than they were before the start of the crisis. Yeah, so as much as people complained and it was a struggle to get it agreed, it did help, at least in the short term. And it sort of argues that more is needed if this crisis continues to roll on as it, as it seems to be doing. Zach, how are we defining poverty very quickly? Sure. Poverty, in short, is having resources or income that is lower than a needs threshold that says, if you have an income below this level, depending on where you live, the size of your family, you probably don't have enough income or resources to live a decent life and participate in society. So for an average family of four in an average cost city, the poverty rate, the, the poverty threshold is around $28,000 per year, as one example. $28,000 a year for a family of four living in a city. Not a lot. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot of money, particularly for living in a city in the United States. So talk to me about the, the poverty rates, because I gave the snapshots of where we were before the pandemic in the United States and where we were after. But if you look at the poverty rates among white Americans versus mm. minority communities in the United States, that gap is vast as well. The racial and ethnic disparities really stand out, and it's really disheartening, to be honest. We've seen already before the start of the crisis massive racial and ethnic disparities, black and Latino people in particular, facing elevated rates of poverty. And those disparities have only widened throughout the crisis. We're at a point now where about one in four black and Latino people in the United States is living in poverty. Uh, That's roughly double, more than double the rate for white people. And again, if you think why, look at some of the occupations that have been most affected by this crisis, look at some of the states with the least generous unemployment benefits, for example, and we see across the board, there's simply massive racial and ethnic disparities that don't need to be this way in a country as wealthy as the United States. You know, one of the other things that stood out to me as well, Zach, from this report was that you suggested that a third of unemployed people don't even get benefits in this country. I guess you've got a significant immigrant population as well that 
aren't registered or on the books, particularly in the services sector like restaurants and bars, but also with the stimulus checks that were sent out, a third of people that were eligible didn't get those either. I mean, what's going on? The unemployment benefit problem is particularly stark. We're talking about uh, millions of individuals across this country who are due their unemployment benefits. They paid into the system. They have the right to receive these. Because of some of the red tape involved with having to apply for these benefits at the state level, uh, millions of people just aren't receiving these benefits. And as a result, they are hurting badly. We see record levels of food insecurity in this country. We see high levels of uh, families who say they're not able to pay the rent at the end of the month, and they're staring down the threat of eviction. This is simply what the data suggests. And we know that that hardship is particularly acute for those individuals who, for one reason or another, just haven't been able to get access to those benefits. And moving forward, it's especially important that uh, we make sure that these types of families have the income support they need to put food on the table and to provide for their families. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We were just showing the statistics, Aaron. I talk about them on a weekly basis. 25 million Americans claiming some form of work-related benefit. But if you're correct, then it just totally underestimates the scale of the problem that the country faces and likely other countries as well. I guess, and this is going back to my economics background, if there was a criticism I was going to make of the study, and you can perhaps um, uncross some of my wires here, you're looking Mm -hmm. at poverty rates on a monthly basis versus annual numbers. But we're looking at monthly income this year versus annual income in previous years and an unemployment rate in 2020. So how much inaccuracy Mm -hmm. and error is there going to be in the data when you're sort of jumping between years and annualized and monthly numbers? Sure. I'll I'll simply say this, that um, a group of researchers at Chicago is also doing work on poverty. They are taking an annual perspective. In our latest study, we're taking a monthly perspective But what's interesting is that the results go pretty much hand in hand. From an annual perspective, they're also seeing an increase in poverty rates in the United States. We look at the monthly perspective because we know, the research suggests, that a lot of families right now are living month to month, that maybe they got that stimulus check a few months ago, but they're having a hard time stretching that final dollar over some uncountable number of months throughout the rest of this year and the next year when employment rates recover. So we've adopted the monthly perspective just as a supplement to that annual framework. But what's interesting is that it doesn't matter too much in this perspective, whether you take an annual or monthly framework, poverty rates are on the rise either way. Yeah, the message is clear. Give it to the federal government, Zach, please, and Congress. Zach Parolin, postdoctoral researcher at Columbia University. Yes, the end. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Julia. Thanks for having me on. All right, coming up on First Move, Dubai prepares to welcome the world at next year's expo. We get an inside look after this. Welcome back to First Move, Dubai buzzing as it prepares for its world expo next year. And the excitement is something I've seen up close, I can tell you. Originally, it was set for 2020. The massive event showcases more than 190 countries John Defteris gets this sneak peek. About a 40-minute drive south of downtown Dubai, a site that will be the center of a major international event next year is taking shape. 
It's getting ready to host the first World Expo in the Arab world, attracting millions of visitors over six months to witness the latest in innovation from around the globe. A World Expo is a large exhibition that is public and its objective is to be a meeting point for the global community to share innovations and really contribute to the progress on international issues, launching new ideas that can improve the quality of the world population. They're of similar magnitude as the Olympic Games and also the FIFA World Cup. The Expo 2020 site is vast, the size of more than 600 football fields. When it opens in October 2021, it will see more than 190 countries coming together to showcase breakthroughs and future innovations across three broad themes. The main theme of the Expo is connecting minds, creating future. Our focus on this Expo is three areas, the, uh, on the area of sustainability, mobility and opportunity. Delayed by a year because of COVID-19, work on the site is at an advanced stage with participating countries currently building their pavilions and installing their exhibitions. In terms of uh, construction, uh, we are at the very final stage. So our uh, target to finish everything uh, by the end of this year in terms of construction of the site. By hosting the event, Dubai is hoping for an economic windfall, stimulating a number of key sectors. During the six months in which the event is being held, we do expect to see a short-term boost to consumption, to domestic demand, specifically in sectors such as retail trade, hospitality, and housing. It's also hoped that Expo 2020 will leave a lasting economic legacy and further raise Dubai's international profile as a leading tourist destination. John Defterius, CNN, Dubai. Wow, it looks incredible. Fingers crossed. All right, Peloton recalling the pedals of around 27,000 bikes after receiving 120 reports of breakage, 16 reports of injuries. The recall applies to certain pedals that were fitted on bikes sold between July of 2013 and May 2016. Peloton, of course, has seen its business soar during the pandemic with more people exercising at home when gyms were closed. And Google has a solution for that song that's stuck in your head, and it's called Hum to Search. Oh, I thought we did it. The new feature is now part of Google's app and Google Assistant. Users can ask, what's this song? Then hum, whistle or sing part of the song for 15 seconds. Wow, that's a long time. Google will then offer a list of probable songs. Google says you don't need to have perfect pitch to get the feature to work. What about any pitch at all? Hmm, don't know. Anyway, goodness, thank goodness for that. <laughs> that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Have a safe weekend and we'll see you next week. Take care. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.